Well, today we're uh, finishing up Romans chapter 5, so uh, if, you take, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there, Romans chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 19 to 21. I know a lot of you were probably gone for spring break in the last two weeks, uh, so we've been going through Romans 5, 12 to 21. The first week, we asked the question, what is wrong with the world? Why is it so broken? Why is my life so broken? Answer, verses 12 to 14, because the one man, Adam, sinned and fell and broke our relationship with God. Week two, we did verses 15 to 17, we said, what has God done about Adam's sin? Answer, the one man, Jesus Christ, has come and conquered the sin and the effects of Adam. And this week, we're going to say, what is this grace? What is grace? What is this grace thing, and how does it actually affect and change uh, our lives? So uh, here, Romans five nineteen to 21. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is this thing, grace, all about? How does it affect and change our life? This is what Paul is going to show us here, and he's saying, really, we can't miss it. Because if we miss what he's saying here, we could miss the entire uh, Christian gospel because uh, he's saying that the the trouble is that actually almost every one of us has a one-sided gospel. We like to emphasize one side of the gospel over the others, and if we do that, uh, we either reject grace or we reinvent grace. So if you're wondering where we're going this morning, three points, three things Paul's showing us, the rejection of grace, the reinvention of grace, and the reign of grace. So let's look first at the rejection of grace. Uh, who in the world would reject grace, right? I mean, who in the world would? What, what does that even mean? Well, I think Paul is saying this, is that we have to do everything in our power to guard the gospel from becoming this one-sided reality. And that's why all through this passage, 12 to 21, Paul's been giving us both sides, right? The bad news and the good news. Adam and Jesus. Condemnation and justification. Sin and grace. He's been giving us both sides, not just one side, but both sides all the way through. And he's saying that actually the gospel is first bad news. And we have to actually hear the bad news and how bad the bad news is before we can actually appreciate and rejoice over how good the good news is really is. Look at verse 19. He says, for as by the one man's, that's Adam, at the one man Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners. You see what he's saying there? You were made sinners. It's not just, you know, crossing a line. It's not just, you know, making a little mistake, telling a little white lie. It is the bent and disposition of who we are. That's what he's saying. You were made, so you didn't just commit a few sins, you were made sinners. That's what Paul is actually uh, saying here. It's our bent, it's our essence. And uh, you have to see that it's part of you, it's part of me. It's not just out there, it's actually in here. And, and so week one, if you were here two weeks ago, I talked about my, my friend trying to dig up the stump in his yard, right? The, the four-foot stump, he had, there was a bulldozer, by the way, the other day, and it's still not gone. Uh, so if you, didn't, if you don't get that, you've got to go back and listen to the podcast. So this huge stump he's trying to dig up in his, in his yard, and uh, you know what we see is this little stump on the top, but underneath is, is, uh, is roots going deep, down, far, strong, powerful, and Paul is saying that's really what sin is like. We see this little surface area on top, you know, a few things that we do, but down deep it's rooted, it's powerful, sin stretches out across that, that, uh, that plane. 
And we have to get this. Why do we have to get this? Because this is where most people say, well, okay, yeah, there's bad, there's evil in the world. This is where religion comes in, right? So we need, we need Christianity, we need religions like that because we get some moral advice. We, get, we learn how to be a good person. We, we get some instruction, some obedience. And in essence, that's exactly what the people in Paul's day, especially the Jews, he's writing to Jews and Gentiles in Rome, right? That's exactly what they would have thought. That's right, Paul, that's why we have the law. That's why God's given us the law, Paul. See, we're the good people, we obey the law. All those bad people are out there. And unfortunately, that's, in a lot of ways, how the church has adopted its attitude toward uh, the world. But look what Paul says. He says, what is the law for? The law came in to increase the trespass, to increase the sin. The word there is actually slipped in or kind of snuck in to do what? What did the law come in to do? To increase the sin, to increase the trespass? What in the world does that mean? And Paul is dropping a huge hammer on people here. And he says, to those who think they can be moral enough, good enough, obedient enough, who can obey the law enough. You don't tell you what your obedience to the law has gotten you. It is an increase. It is a blowing up. It is a magnification, actually, of sin. And Paul drops that massive hammer and says, actually, the law will increase your sin. And I'm going to tell you how in just a second, but this is really important because it's, if you're a non-Christian, this is usually the way you misunderstand the gospel. The gospel, the Christian gospel, just means come and be a good person. Come and follow a list of rules. Be this kind of person versus this kind of person. And Paul is saying it's more fundamental that because if you look at what Christianity says is that the law came in not to show you how to have goodness, but to show you that actually you don't have any goodness. What do I mean by that? Well, the law gives us a standard we can measure things by, right? I mean, uh, think about it. You know, I, I like, people ask me how tall I am. I will tell you I'm six feet tall. And in actuality, I'm about this far short of six feet. I'm like, you know, quarter inch, sco short. Um, and, uh, you know, if, you, if I told you that, you probably wouldn't think about it. You'd probably go, yeah, I can eyeball it. You probably are six feet. Or you could make me like stand, you know, back to back with somebody and measure me and say, yeah. Or I could stand back to back with what? A standard, a rule, a tape measure. And you would see, yep, you just fell short. You didn't increase 71 and three quarters, but not 72 inches. And, and you would see that very clearly uh, on the tape if you, if you measure me. And Paul's saying, this is really what the law does, right? That's why in Romans 3.23, you can say what? Everyone has sinned and what? Fallen short. Man, I appreciate that. You guys really responded. I like the dialogical. We get some amens going, things like that. Um, <laughs> um, where was I? So the <laughs> so he actually shows you that you uh, that you fall short. That that's what he's saying. The law, because what is the law? The law is not just some arbitrary list of do's and don'ts. The law is showing you this is the essence of who God is. It is giving you the chance to stand back to back with God. I like to stand back to back with somebody shorter than me, right? I don't want to stand back to back and measure myself against. God, because that's what the law, the law is not just an arbitrary list, it's telling you about God. So when the law says don't lie, it's not just saying, hey, God thought it'd be a good idea, or your life would go better. He's saying the essence of God's heart is a God that doesn't lie. I'm a God that tells the truth. I'm a God that always tells you the truth, and therefore, you don't lie. That's what the law is. The law is an expression of God's character and his fullness, and it lets us stand back to back to God and see really how desperate the situation is. That's what Jesus does with the law, Right? Remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5? What does he say? Oh, you've heard it said, don't murder. And, and all the Jews of the day and the people that are obedient and nice and religious and people like, you know, me, I'm, I don't murder. I'm not going to be put in prison for murder. Only a few people really do that, right? And Jesus says, what? I, I tell you the truth. 
If any man is angry at his brother, he is guilty of murder. Because anger is the seedbed that explodes into murder. He's saying it just, just your anger at your brother shows that you're a murderer. He does the same thing when he says what? Love your neighbors as yourself. What does that mean? Love your neighbor as yourself. That, that means the calling of the law is for me to love my neighbors, to meet all my neighbors' needs with the same urgency, the same gusto, the same love, the same amount of resources, the same everything that, with, with which I meet my own needs. I don't even do that with my own family, much less my neighbors, much less people that I don't even really know that well. And so you see, when you stand back, that's what God does, that's his heart. When you stand back to back and measure yourself against the real law, you see where we stand. And hopefully it makes us desperate for grace. So Christianity... Every other religion says you come to God, you get God by your obedience, by your goodness, by your moralism. Christianity says the law shows you you don't have any of that to bring to God. That's not how you get to him. You have none of that to bring. In fact, your your goodness sometimes is what will most get in your way. That's why one professor said, Lord, save us from our damnable good works, which is seemingly counterintuitive, but that's what he's saying. And if we minimize that, if we, if we take a one-sided gospel and minimize the law, minimize the sin, minimize that through one man's disobedience we were made sinners, that the law is coming in to increase our trespass, then we will eventually minimize the law, minimize our sin, and reject grace. It's a rejection of grace. And we don't really tend to like to listen to the law that way because it is so convicting. But we like to create our own laws, right? We like to create our own kind of holiness codes. Christians are especially good at this. It usually involves things like, you know, not dancing, not smoking, not drinking, not owning any Metallica CDs, things like that. <laughs> few of you grew up in the church, you know what I mean? Um, we create that own little law. And then there's only two options. Either you're so good at it, right? You create, that's not in the, Metallica's not in the Bible. Uh, you, you create your own little law and then you're so proud always because you're obeying it and you're being good and you're one of the good guys. That's what the people in Paul I'm one of the good guys, they're the bad guys. And you're obeying it and you're following it. But inside, you're not, but your law is a protection. It's a guard against what's really inside, which is uh, nobody else can get it. Nobody else can see it. Nobody can see what's really going on. Nobody can else really see the roots that really go down deep because I'm going to pretend that everything um, is all right. And it's really... A rejection of grace. We can admit our small faults, but we only admit our small faults to prove to people that we don't have any big ones. We just admit the little ones to prove to people we don't have any big ones. We use the goodness to guard ourselves, and what it really means is that God becomes a God of the gaps. He's just a little bit, I just need a little bit of your grace. That's all I really need from you. We can also do it the opposite way because if you don't get puffed up with pride, then you're always failing because you're always succeeding. Then you're always failing and you're always in despair. And you've always got your head hung. You're always living in shame and fear and doubt. And, and you can't hardly even raise your eyes to meet God's because you feel like, oh, I, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And you say, and the moralist, the religious person will say something like, I know God's a forgiving God, but I just can't forgive myself. But that too, as strange as it sounds, is pride is saying, I can't forgive myself because I'm my own God. That's what the moralist says. So you either end up in pride or in despair, and both are a rejection of grace. And so we can reject that, we can reject grace that way, and, and you think about it, that's when Jesus was on earth, who, who, who loved Jesus on earth? The Pharisees, right? The, the religious people, all the good people, the moral people, the church leaders, they loved him, right? No, they killed him. 
Who loved Jesus? Who streamed to Jesus? Yeah, the sinners, the prostitutes, the pimps, the tax collectors. Because they understood that there was a mountain of sin in front of them and that if God's grace was going to get to them, it would have to abound to them. And when Jesus came to them, it was grace abounding over sin and the Pharisees and the, sinner, and the righteous had a little molehill of, uh, of sin and so they didn't need a very big savior. They didn't need an abounding set of grace. That was scandalous in Jesus' day and it's scandalous in our day. And it's basically saying you can't get grace, you can't understand grace, you can't have it abound to you until you know the scandal of your sin and how scandalous it is. So we can reject it on that fr- front or we can reinvent it on the other side because now Paul's in turn to the other side of the gospel, the good news. He says those who are made sinners, now look at verse 19 and 20 again, those who are made sinners will be made what? Righteous. That's, it's a passive verb. Passive means I'm not acting, somebody else is acting. Uh, somebody else is doing it. It's, it's being given to me. It's a grace. He's saying grace has entered the picture. There's a chance for the stump to be uh, uprooted. And then verse 20, he says this, where sin abounded or increased, grace has superabounded. He's saying no matter how deep the, the stump goes, the roots go, the grace of God goes deeper still. That there's infinitely more grace in Jesus than there is sin in me. But you notice he continues to couple these things together. He says you can't have one without the other. And what we've done largely, I think, in our culture in our day is reinvent grace. We've kind of, rather than grace being this sovereign act of God uh, toward sinners for the salvation of of sinners, it has become just, you know, God's kind of basic disposition, just kind of his MO. God's kind of the big guy in the sky. He gives everybody the thumbs up. He gives everybody the, you know, the winning smile. He gives everybody the the stamp of approval and and the stamp of affirmation. And it feels, you know, it, it feels very good. It's kind of feel-good uh, religion. And we just kind of say, you know, he's, he's for me. He's there for me. And if there is a God, he's just a loving spirit um, in the sky. And I think for p- most people in our culture, their, their, their concept of salvation or of Jesus is more, akin, is more akin to kind of just running into Jesus in a crowded mall. It's like, you know, I'm really there for other things, but it, Jesus is a nice guy, so it was nice that I got to stop and, and say hi to him. And so there's this reinvention of grace that it's just kind of this nice guy in the sky that gives you uh, the thumbs up. But that would be to divorce, Paul says, the many who were made sinners from the many who will be made righteous. It's a reinvention of grace. Listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer writing in the 1930s describe this view of grace. He calls it cheap grace. He says, cheap grace, should be on the screen, cheap grace is the mortal enemy of our church. Our struggle today is for costly grace. The world finds in this church a cheap cover-up for its sins, for which it shows no remorse, from which it has even less desire to be set free. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance, baptism without the discipline of community, the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. Cheap grace is grace without the cross, grace without the living incarnate Jesus Christ. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. That is a reinvention of the grace of God. That is not what God says his grace is or what it's like. Now, you might say, but I, I kind of like this idea because if I just believe, you know, God is love and not justice, is that really, that's not really a problem. I mean, that's kind, of, that's kind of nice. Everybody gets along. Everybody's nice. God's for you. Good job. But let me ask you a question. How can that God change your life? How can, the great, how can that grace change your life? It, it really, what's it, what's it cost that God to love you? Nothing. 
It's cost that God nothing to love you. It's just a simple thumbs up in the sky versus the cost that comes in the gospel. The cost that God is saying, the cost that Paul is telling us about right here. Because if we have the reinvention of grace, all we have is a sappy, sentimental idea of God in our head rather than the real God who is both loving and just, who is both goodness and justice. And that God, the reinvention of grace, God, will never transform you, never challenge you. If we lose that side of the gospel, we create a one-sided gospel, if we forget, if we stop seeing what it costs God to love us, the fact that he sent his son into the jaws of hell and death for you, if we stop seeing that, we'll stop being transformed by the gospel all the way around. And you hear Paul's excitement. Paul's excited about grace. Uh, Paul is making up words here. The word superabounded, or what, what we tra- the translation there is uh, abound all the more, he's, that's actually a made-up word. It's superabounded, hyperabounded, over the top. He's trying to make up words. The sentences are running together. It's like a, a crescendo is coming, and he's, he is so excited about this grace. And, and, and what I see in my own life is that I'm so often totally unexcited. It's not driving me. It's not compelling me. It's not, it's not leading me. It's not guiding me. It's not the operating principle uh, in in my life, it's not generating anything. Why has the message, God loves you, lost all power, all, con- all, all wonder, all awe? Because the reinvention of grace, it's a cheap grace. It's a grace that avoids the cost that it took God to love us. And if you're, if you're a Christian today, the reason that grace would seem so undesirable to you or so old hat to you is because you feel like you don't need it. If you're a non-Christian today, the reason you would think grace seems unappealing to you is because you feel like you don't need it. This is what Paul's pointing out. We need both sides of the gospel. How does that work out in Paul's life? Paul says this, um, and this is something I've shown in every membership class. If you've gone through the membership class, you've seen it. Uh, so it's kind of, I apologize for the terrible graphics, but you'll see it come up here. And uh, it's just something a little, I kind of doodle, but I think it helps you see what it is we're looking at. This is what most people see the Christian life as, right? There I am over on the side. I come, I, I believe in Jesus. You know, God is up there. He's infinitely holy and good. The cross bridges that gap, and therefore I'm, I'm Christian. I'm, a, I'm saved. I'm a saved sinner. And then my life is kind of this, you know, progressive, getting better and better. There's mountains and valleys, but generally I'm moving up, getting closer and closer to God. And when that happens, what happens to the cross? What happens to it? It's getting smaller. It's shrinking. My need for grace, my need for mercy is shrinking down to nothing. But look at how the Apostle Paul sees his own life. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, 9, it's where he says, uh, I am the least of all the apostles, right? Now, I'm still kind of elite because I'm one of 12 but I'm the least of those. Then five years later, he writes Ephesians 3.8 and says, you know what, I'm the least of all the saints. And then five years later, he writes 1 Timothy 1.15 where he says the most famous verse, I am the chief of sinners. As he's gone through his life, it's like, is Paul getting worse? Is he going downhill? No, what's happening? What's happening to the cross? It's getting bigger. Mercy is exploding. Grace is starting to abound in his life because he's seeing that where the law came in, sin increased. But where sin, come, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. He's starting to see the gospel 
and, and, and grace is beginning to abound to him. It's not just a God of gaps where he fills that little gap in the end, but I need him more. more. I'm desperate. I'm thirsty for this cross, for this mercy. And that brings us to see the climax of chapter 5, and indeed the whole book of Romans to this point, and the reign of grace in verse 21. Paul says, So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you hear what he says there? Grace reigns. Grace is more than a thumbs up. It's more than a disposition. It's more than just favor. Grace is a power. Grace is a power to rule. It is a power to conquer the effects of Adam. It is a power to change. It is a power to transform. It is a power to make new. That's what grace is. It rules. It reigns. That's what Paul is saying there, that, that it brings you under its power, under its sway, under its spell. And it's, this is the opposite of rejecting grace for moralism or reinventing grace for imitation those are just spiritualized slogans to say, I am my own God. I want to do whatever I, I want to do what I want to do. I want to define good and bad. I want to define right and wrong for myself. And I won't allow my personal autonomy to be challenged. It's really a way for me to be, be my own God. But the gospel says Christianity is not first and foremost about becoming more moral. It's about renouncing my own self-control, my own personal autonomy, and coming up under the rule and the reign of King Jesus. And it's a reign of grace. It's not a reign of sin and death. It's a reign of grace. And most people think to come to Jesus would be stifling because I want to be the captain of my own ship. I want to, be, I want to direct my own path. But Paul says that is part of actually a stifling slave master. That is the reign of sin and death. But if you come to Christ, you have the reign of grace. Jesus offers the reign of grace, which consists of what? Verse 21 tells us that it reigns through righteousness, which reminds us of verse 19 that says, Jesus' obedience makes us righteous. And this is called the active obedience of Jesus Christ. You may or may not have ever heard of that, but the act of obedience, meaning there's not only a righteousness that God demands from you, there's one he gives you. And it is the righteousness of his own son when you come to him by faith. And what it means is that every obedience Jesus did, everything he ever uh, accomplished, every time he trusted the Father, that's yours. You no longer have to rely on your own trusting, your own goodness, your own ability, your own moralism. You have the act of righteousness, the act of obedience of Christ at your disposal. And he says this, it is inexhaustible. Inexhaustible. What is infinity minus thousand? It's infinity. You cannot exhaust the infinite. You are, you are more likely to drink down the Pacific Ocean than you are to exhaust the grace of God. There's infinitely more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you and brokenness in the world. And all that comes as a free gift so the reign, of, the reign of grace means this. It means you can really change. It means that grace is not just a covering for your sin, but actually restoration from your sin. It actually can become the operating principle of your life. Instead of being filled with anxiety about what everybody else thinks, you have the reign of grace that says, I know what God thinks, and I'm secure in that. Instead of uh, all the anxiety that comes with, uh, or, or instead of being filled and in the grip of, of other things, like being in the grip of proving yourself, justifying yourself by your own performance, you're in the grip of grace. You've been justified. Your existence is justified by the grace of God. And it becomes the central power in your life. It doesn't just hide the old person, Adam, but it, it's supposed to create a new person in Christ, a new creation. 
That's why the famous, I love the, the verse from you too that says, what, you, what does grace do? Grace makes beauty out of ugly things. What are the ugly things in your life that God needs to make beautiful? That the reign of grace needs to get a hold of. The reign of grace needs to grip. That the reign of Jesus needs to hold on to. And so Dallas Willard says it this way. He says, the greatest saints are not those who need less grace, but those who consume the most grace. Who indeed are in the most need of grace. Those who are saturated by grace. Grace to them is like breath. It is abounding. It is glorious. It is coming. And finally, last word. Grace is not only powerful over our lives and central, but it's actually permanent. Do you see what the end of verse 21 said? It says the, grace, the reign of grace leads to what? Eternal life. It's the final contrast Paul makes, and he's saying that grace has, grace has the final word. Grace plays the final note. That the throne belonging to sin and death and decay and condemnation has been dethroned. But the reign of grace will reign to eternity. It will never end. Sin and death and brokenness fading away. But the reign of Christ, he's saying, is unto eternal life. It will not go away. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, if you wonder what you believe about Jesus, I want to personally invite you not to a new set of rules, not to a moralistic enterprise, not to the trying to be good and nice, but to the reign of Jesus to renounce your own self-rule, to renounce your own ability to control your life and give it to Jesus. To by faith take him as your savior. And if you're not, if you are a Christian this morning, I want you to look into your heart and say, what are the deepest, most broken places, the sins that have plagued me for my life, the things that I feel like are unfixable, cannot be undone? And then write these words, eternal life, across in your head and hear the word of God say those broken places those sins those sufferings do not have the last word they will not play the last note the last note belongs to grace the last note belongs to Jesus Christ who currently reigns because where sin increased grace has abounded and superabounded all the more and now grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray.